Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. This episode is brought to you by Easy Recess, your ultimate support for the first hour of resuscitation. This amazing phone app has drug dosing, treatment algorithms, and procedural aids all in under three clicks. Rapid access to life-saving critical info in a user-friendly interface. Try the app for free with the promo code EMCASES or visit easyrecess.com slash EMCASES. That's the letters E-Z, recess.com slash EMCASES. All right, gentlemen, we've done shoulders, we've done ankles, we've done knees, we've done elbows, and we've done hands. The only major ortho extremity injuries we haven't covered on EM cases are wrists and hips, but hips are relatively straightforward. So in this two-part episode series, we're going to cover wrists and carpal bones. Now, you might be thinking that wrist injuries are also pretty straightforward, but as you'll hear soon, with the blinding brilliance that doctors Matt DiStefano and Aaron Ciel will be serving up, there are many nuances in diagnosis and management that significantly affect outcomes. This is commonly missed or mismanaged wrist injuries. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. I note the high expectations of blinding brilliance. All right. Well, let's just dive in. Usually we do some cases, but I think for this podcast, we're going to be talking about so many different injuries that we'll just keep it really sweet, simple, and short. So let's say there's a 40-year-old that comes in with a Fouche-type injury and a dinner fork deformity of the wrist. We're all pretty comfortable with managing a Coley's fracture in the ED. But just like any presentation, like chest pain or belly pain, we really should construct a differential diagnosis for every patient with a suspected wrist injury so that we don't fall into any cognitive bias traps. So, Dr. DeStefano, what info do you gather in the history before you construct your initial differential diagnosis for the patient with a suspected wrist injury? You know, all too often we skip the details of the history and jump right to the physical, or even worse, just jump to the x ray and presume the diagnosis from the x ray. Let's just go through what you need to glean from the history, not to gloss over because it will actually help us with our differential, which we want to keep wide instead of that cognitive bias of zeroing in on a diagnosis before we've thought about the other possibilities. Sure. And good point. It's so seductive to go to the x-ray right away. But before you lay eyes on that, you should gather a history like you referred to. And it's really about age-related prevalence of disease. That's everything we do in medicine, right? Our differential is based on the age of the patient combined with their story. And in orthopedic medicine, particularly for trauma, age is about tissue quality. And that's going to help me construct my differential because really I want to know, is their bone good or is their bone not so good? So this 40-year-old guy you're referring to, I want to know, are you diabetic? Do you smoke? Are there any comorbidities that are relevant? If he's really a healthy 40-year-old and he comes in with an obvious deformity, I know already he's had a high energy mechanism. But I'll confirm that by talking to him. And then the rest of the upper extremity history is really based on occupation, handedness, what's your limb dominance, and what do you do for fun? I'm probably going to be a little more picky with someone who's a professional musician and it's their dominant wrist, as opposed to someone who's 82 years old and institutionalized and it's their non-dominant hand. And Anton, I, I love your introduction because there are pitfalls in our common descriptions of these distal radius fractures. And you mentioned this 40-year-old's coming in with a Collie's fracture. And right off the bat, I would say I'm skeptical because most 40-year-olds are going to have good bone quality. And a Collie's fracture, almost by definition, is fragile bone with a low energy mechanism that's a transmetaphyseal injury. This 40-year-old with good bone quality and he's going to have a high energy mechanism, the likelihood before you even look at the x-ray is it's going to be intra-articular. And hence, it's not a Collie's. And I think for framing much of our discussion today, just a reminder that eponyms are dangerous. 
One of the things I learned in starting working in the fracture clinic, when I saw a patient and emerge before I worked in the fracture clinic, I'd be like, oh, it's a colleague's fracture. I just put that label on everything. And then when you go and you see the spectrum of injury, well, colleagues is maybe 60% of distal radius fractures in adults, but we stick the label on it and that sticks. And then every time you see a colleague's fracture, what do we think? Oh, flexion, ulnar deviation. And, and everything flows like the dominoes fall after we put a label on it, but the label might not be correct. So understanding what the spectrum is, it reminds me of Dunning-Kruger. I, I thought I knew something about emerge ortho, but before I started working in the fracture clinic, and then once I started working, I'm like, oh man, there's way more to this than I thought. So I, I totally appreciate you saying take the eponyms off it. There's lots of wrist injuries that a foosh can produce, and we're going to get into some of these a little bit later. But let's talk a little bit about the physical exam. You know, there's the point of maximal tenderness that's going to help us narrow our differential diagnosis further, but we need to know our surface anatomy cold to get this right because there's all those little carpal bones in there that are very easy to forget. For the life of me, I can never remember them, except there is a mnemonic. For those of you who like mnemonics, there are some ones out there that aren't appropriate for uh, podcasts, but the one that is, is so long to pinky, here comes the thumb. So S is for scaphoid, L is for lunate, T is for triquetrium, P is for pisiform, H is for hamate, C is for capitate, T is for trapezoid, and T is for trapezium. Dr. Ciel, could you just run through for us some of the key points of the surface anatomy that we really need to know for these carpal bone injuries? I do urge our listeners to palpate their own hand while they're doing this, unless they're driving, of course. And we'll have some great pictures in the in the show notes to go along with as well. Yeah, I think this is really important because when, when somebody has a fall on their outstretched hand, the differential is fairly wide. The x-ray can actually be normal. So how do you know you have an occult injury? Actually, it's the physical exam that, that really drives you or localizes where the, where the pathology could be. So inside of a, a normal ECG, we know a lot of pathology that can sit there inside of a normal wrist x-ray. We know there's a lot of pathology that can sit there. And what, what helps narrow the focus is actually our assessment, our pretest probability. And a very important that from a physical point of view is their point of maximal tenderness. So not just A, they're tender. Not just B, they have a point of tenderness, because what happens sometimes is we find a point of tenderness and we stop examining them. So we examine somebody, oh, they're tender in their snuffbox, or they're tender in their distal radius, and then we stop the exam. But it's actually a point of maximal tenderness, and to be maximum, you got to compare it to all the other points, because that patient may be sore in their distal radius, but they're also sore in their fifth metacarpal. And if you don't recognize that, then when on the x-ray, you only look at the distal radius, you don't look at the fifth metacarpal, and you miss the second fracture. So this is one of the key points about, you know, you don't know how many places are actually injured. So it's not just finding a point of tenderness. It's really important to remember, you're trying to find the point of maximal tenderness. Ask the patient where it hurts, examine it last. Remind yourself to examine the rest of the wrist first, and then you can go touch the painful area. So this is a little reminder of how to sort of do this. It doesn't necessarily take a long time, but if you have a good rhythm to it, you'll be far more efficient. Then exactly as you say, Anton, it's understanding surface anatomy. <laughs> My wrist exam before was just snuffbox tenderness. Because if somebody had a negative x-ray and I just identified they had snuffbox tenderness, that negative wrist x-ray now becomes a clinical scaphoid fracture. And if their negative x-ray was not accompanied by snuffbox tenderness, they were diagnosed with soft tissue injury wrist. And that's what I did. I started working the fracture clinic and started seeing a whole bunch of other diagnoses. So now to get back to your question of surface anatomy, now that we understand why it's important, there are a number of injuries that are less common, but can be serious, and we need to be able to identify them. So on your hand, it's pretty easy to recognize on the dorsum of your hand, the ulnar styloid. And if you take the ulnar styloid and you go on towards the radial side, almost like draw a line across the level of the ulnar styloid, and then your second finger and you come down proximal from your second finger... Essentially, where they intersect, you're on your distal radius, and there's a, a bony prominence on the dorsal aspect of your distal radius, and that's called Lister's tubercle. And that's essentially there, and just before that is where patients with a distal radius fracture are tender, but this is the starting point of the wrist exam. So it's very important to be able to roll your thumb back and forth over Lister's tubercle. You know, if you put your thumb on Lister's tubercle, you then put your index finger on the palmer side. So you've basically clamped, you've clamped the distal radius. If you move your wrist dorsal volar, your examining clamp isn't moving because you're on the distal forearm. 
Now what you do is, is from Lister's tubercle, which you can accurately identify, you find your second web space when your hand is in neutral. So on the dorsum side of the wrist from Lister's, you go down a couple of centimeters and your thumb just drops in a little divot. There's a little shallow sort of divot that your thumb falls into, and that's a space between your scaphoid and your lunate. So if you go from Lister's and go distal, you put your thumb in that little divot, put your index finger now on the palmer side of the equivalent location. And now when you try to move your wrist dorsal volar, you're examining clamp, the C of the, the, the thumb and the index finger is moving because now you're on the proximal carpals. So this actually is where the scaphalunate ligament is. And the scaphalunate ligament I used to think was just a complete tear, Terry Thomas sign, it's an x-ray finding. It's actually a clinical finding. And you can have a little stretch of it, you can have a partial tear, or you can have a complete tear. There's a spectrum of scaphalunate ligament injury, and they're all tender at that spot. But if you never touch it, you never find it. The other important thing on the dorsum of the hand while we're still here, you take your fourth finger and you come down. Take your fourth finger, come down proximally. You'll again, you can identify your ulnar styloid. So just distal to your ulnar styloid, fourth finger down. Now, the tendons of your hand need to be relaxed, and there's a small little divot, and it varies from patient to patient. But fourth finger down, just distal to the ulnar styloid, same level as scaphalonate ligament, like at the proximal carpals, that little divot is the triquetrum. And if you're tender in that spot, you can predict the patient has a triquetral chip fracture. And then you have to look on the lateral x-ray for that little small chip off the proximal. But that's predictable on history and physical. So those are two things on the dorsum of the hand that'll guide you. We are all fairly aware of snuffbox tenderness, but there's a little art to the snuffbox as well. So if, you, if a patient hikes up their thumb, you can create the, the, the snuffbox, and then we tend to palpate in that space. But when the patient hikes up their thumb and they create, you can see the, you know, the snuffbox, what actually happens is they're radially deviating their wrist. And the proper way to examine for snuffbox tenderness is actually with the wrist in ulnar deviation. So if you ask them to hike up their thumb, they're putting the wrist in sort of the opposite position than you would want. So when you put the wrist in ulnar deviation, the scaphoid rotates under the snuffbox and you're actually palpating the scaphoid, the distal, middle, and even part of the proximal pole of it. But if you put the wrist in radial deviation, the scaphoid rotates and the scaphoid rotates into a garage and now all you're palpating is the distal part. So the way to examine for snuffbox tenderness is actually palpate in the snuffbox, but the wrist in ulnar deviation. Maybe, you know, if you palpate your own snuffbox, it might feel a little uncomfortable. Palpate the other side. One in five, one in six people have snuffbox tenderness at rest. And that's physiology, not pathology. So if you find somebody is actually tender in their snuffbox, a good thing to do is examine their opposite side. And if they have asymmetry, it's a red flag. If they're equal on both sides, just ask, did you fall on both wrists? Because I've seen a few cases of bilateral scaphoid fractures. So they broke both at the same time. So if they're tender in both sides and they fell on both sides, you don't know if that tenderness was there before or not. You need to actually treat them as if they have a clinical scaphoid fracture. But if they only fell on one wrist and the snuffbox tenderness is symmetric, I'm way less worried. So that's one clinical test for the scaphoid. The other clinical test is called Palmer scaphoid palpation. There are a ton of studies out there for lots of different ways of how to examine the scaphoid. What our upper extremity surgeons use are these three tests. So snuffbox tenderness to ulnar deviation, Palmer scaphoid palpation. Now, where is that? So if you hike up your thumb, you find your snuffbox. If we're saying that defines the scaphoid on the radial side of the wrist, you'll just take your finger and go around to the Palmer side and you'll find you're just below the thenar eminence. To prove it to yourself, you can take your hand, no flexion or extension of your wrist, and only deviate your wrist. Keep your finger on that, th that thenar eminence, just proximal to the thenar eminence, and when you radially deviate your wrist, so again, no flexion or extension of your wrist, your wrist is in neutral, but you go from ulnar deviation to radial deviation, you'll feel a bone hit your finger just proximal to the base of the thenar eminence. And that's the scaphoid, and the scaphoid rotates. It rotates into the palm when the wrist goes radially. So feeling for what's called scaphoid tubercle or palmar scaphoid palpation is the second test that we would do. The third clinical test for the scaphoid is axiloading the first metacarpal. 
you grasp the, the thumb, you get a good grab of the first metacarpal and you're compressing down sort of the barrel of the forearm and you're trying to compress the scaphoid. And if you cause discomfort with that, that's another test, you know, in a younger adult, you'd be concerned about. The one caveat with that test is if a patient is older, you know, if they have gray hair, they're more likely to have CMC osteoarthritis. And if you compress the thumb, you might get a false positive because they have CMC osteoarthritis. And that gets grinded along the way when you do the axial compression. So in older patients, they're less likely to have a scaphoid fracture. They're more likely to have CMC osteoarthritis. So the older patient, axial loading may be a less valuable test. Those are the three clinical tests for the scaphoid. We talked about scaphoid ligament, which is important. The other important exam, triquetrum. So those are three important carpals. One extra carpal, one extra distal radius. So extra carpal is called the hook of hamate. Pretty uncommon as a fracture, but if it's present, it's commonly missed and it's often surgical. Typical mechanism, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, during the podcast, but palpation for the hook of hamate is on the palmar side. So on the base of the hand, on the ulnar side, palmarly, ulnar base, under the hypothenar, you will feel a bone on the volar side, and that's your, that's your pisiform. That is the one volar carpal bone. And from pisiform, you go a couple of centimeters distal, a couple of centimeters towards your thumb, relax the hand a little bit, and if you press firmly, you should feel the hook of the hamate. If you have a big, thick, meaty hand, not going to be able to feel it, but that's where they'll be tender for a hook of the handmade fracture. You're not actually feeling the, the hook itself. You're just feeling tenderness over that spot. And if after a swinging sport, a club sport, or less commonly a fall on the outstretched hand, if they're tender over the hook of the handmade, you need to worry about that as being a source of pathology. There's some extra x-rays you can order. And then the final thing that I would tell you, we talked about distal radius, is on the ulnar side, we often forget the ulnar side of the wrist, and it's called the drudge, the distal radio ulnar joint, D-R-U-J. And that's an important uh, joint that can be injured, and they'll be tender over the distal radio ulnar joint. So I think if you hit those key spots, snuffbox tenderness, scaphalinate ligament, triquetrum, distal radius, drudge, and hook of hamate, you've got a really sweet wrist exam and emerge. Wow, there's so much gold in there. I just want to review quickly. So start at Lister's tubercle and Lister's tubercle, you can find right at the end of your distal radius, that little bump there. Then you want to go into the divot that's just distal to Lister's tubercle and that's your scapholunate ligament. You've got your triquetrium, which is just distal to your ulnar styloid. Then you mentioned the three scaphoid tests, which are palpating the snuff box, but make sure you're in ulnar deviation. That's the key there. And then on the palmar side, you want to go into radial deviation to hit the scaphoid. And then the axial thumb loading, mainly in young people, and check the other side. The pisiforms at the base of the hypothenar eminence. And if you go just distal and radial to the pisiform at the base of the hypothenar, then you'll hit the hook of the hamate, which is not a common fracture, but if you miss it, it's a big deal because it's surgical. And then finally, the drudge. And we're going to talk about all these injuries, but you need to know where these are on the surface anatomy before we start. Exactly. If you don't touch them and you don't find that they're sore there, it doesn't actually attract your attention when you look at the x-ray. Equally, you know, when, if you're tender in that spot and the x-ray is negative, I'm like, okay, you've injured it. I already know that I'm going to be more worried and want to immobilize you because the test may not be perfect to prove it and emerge. So this is the importance of actually understanding surface anatomy and why it's important to touch it. Yeah, absolutely. Now you can understand why the radiologist sometimes miss fractures because they don't have the opportunity to actually examine the patients. Right. I'll tell you the other reason why they miss them, just to give credit to our radiologist, is our x-rays all the time, the requests, rule out fracture, rule out fracture. We don't even tell them where it's sore. If we told them scaphalunate tenderness, pisiform tenderness, drudge sore, that would attract their attention as well when they look there. We don't give them clinical information and that makes a huge difference to increasing the sensitivity of the reports. Good point. We've talked about history. We've talked about some physical exam pearls. I want to move on to x-ray tips. Dr. Ciel, can you just tell us a bit about the general normal alignment of the bones in the wrist that we should be looking for? And then we can kind of talk about all the lines and, and all of that. But just generally speaking, what kind of alignment should we be looking for in the normal wrist x-ray? Sure. So typically what you'd see in an adult, if you do a wrist x-ray from an eMERGE perspective, is you would get three views. You'll get a PA view, you'll get an oblique view, and you'll get a lateral view. 
the main view in orthopedics is the lateral view. We get very attached to the PA views, but the lateral view is the main view. So we'll chat about that. And then I'll bring in the PA view after. But the lateral view, what's really important, uh, the carpal sometimes can be malaligned. So the capitate, you need to work on how to identify this. It takes a bit of practice, but the capitate should sit in the lunate. The lunate should sit in the distal radius. It's an uncommon thing to have a lunate or a perilunate dislocation. But if it's present, it's commonly missed because we miss it on the lateral film usually. As well on the lateral film, if it's a good lateral, the radius and the ulna should overlap. If the ulna looks like it's a little bit displaced dorsally, that could be a normal finding. There is a variation of normal. It could be a sign of a distal radio ulnar joint dislocation or subluxation. And it makes one just, let's compare to the opposite side, makes sure you have a good film. So on the lateral film, I would say those are probably the main things. There are some other more sophisticated things, scaphalunate angles and those sorts of things, which may be a little beyond sort of an initial typical approach. On the PA view, you know, you'll look at the radius and ulna, they should be fairly snug. If you start to get used to this, if they're a little wider, you'd have to worry about perhaps, could there be a, a widening of the distal radial ulnar joint? And then there's also these arcs and it's called Galula's arcs. There's a nice normal arc to what the proximal carpals look like in the distal carpals. And Galula was a radiologist and he described that on a PA film, the proximal aspect of the proximal carpals will form a nice arc. The distal aspect of the proximal carpals forms a nice arc. And then the proximal aspect of the, of the hamate and the capitate, essentially two of the distal carpals, so proximal aspect, proximal carpals, distal aspect, proximal carpals, proximal aspect, distal carpals, forms three nice, relatively parallel arcs on the PA film. The other thing that you should see on a PA film is all the spaces between the carpals should be relatively equal between the lunate and the triquetrum, between the lunate and the scaphoid, the scaphoid and the distal radius, the capitate and the hamate. You should, the lanes of traffic should be there and you should be able to drive a little toy car through these little lanes and on the PA film, it should look nice. So again, these are uncommon injuries, but if some had some carpal dislocation, some shifting in the carpus itself, it would usually be identified by looking at these subtle, uncommon injuries. Fantastic. So always look at the lateral first. That was a great pearl from our last podcast on reading x-rays that uh, we naturally want to look at the AP or PA, but really there's a lot of gold in the lateral that we sometimes overlook when we're just concentrating on the APPA. And then the uh, Galula lines. Right. And if I'm going to give true credit, the person sitting beside me, Matt Stefano, first person I heard all the time, the lateral view is the money view. That's his. And I learned tons from Matt every time we teach a course together. Excellent. So just a quick review here. We need to know what's normal before we can identify what's abnormal. So the two key lateral wrist x-ray normal alignment patterns that we need to know are first, the radius capitate lunate alignment, which if not present may indicate a scapholunate injury. And second, the radius ulna overlap, which if not present may indicate a drudge injury. And then the two key PA wrist normal alignment patterns we need to know are the distal radius ulna space, which is normally no more than two millimeters wide. If it's more than two millimeters, this should raise the suspicion for a drudge dislocation. And then the galula lines or the three galula arcs. So that's the proximal aspect of the proximal carpals, the distal aspect of the proximal carpals, and the proximal aspect of the distal carpals. They should all normally form smooth arcs with equal spaces between the carpal bones and a disruption of the smooth arc or the size of the space in between the carpal bones could signify a carpal bone injury. All the names of the carpal bones are describing various shapes and we need to know those shapes. The reason we need to know those shapes is because an abnormality in those shapes means that there is probably a serious injury going on there. Dr. DiStefano, could you just go over for us some of the important abnormal shapes of the carpal bones and how to identify them and, and why they're important? Sure. I think there's two we should really focus on in the emergency department, and those are both in the proximal row, and it's the shape of the scaphoid and the shape of the lunate. So let's take those on one at a time along with the views you're going to look at on x-ray. If you look at old textbooks, the scaphoid was often called the navicular, navicular navy boat. So the scaphoid in the AP or the PA view 
is shaped like a little boat. If you took the scaphoid out and put it in water, it should float. If in the PA view, you don't see that boat shape, Houston, you have a problem. And the problem is a list of differentials that may include chronic fracture, AVN of the proximal pole, but most commonly something called the signet ring sign, where the proximal end of the scaphoid can look spherical and almost have like a contrast highlight, like a brain tumor, like a contrast highlight around the proximal end of it. And when you see that in the PA or atypically an AP view, you know the scaphoid is out of position. It's actually laying down relative to its anatomical position, and you must have a significant ligament injury associated with that. So that's one to know about. The second shape to be aware of in the PA is the lunate. It should look roughly square in the PA. If it looks roughly triangular, that's called a pizza sign of the lunate, and that suggests strongly that the lunate is dislocated. Wait, hold on. Lunate, I would think that it looks like the moon, round, or... Ah, yes, but we're talking about the PA. We haven't quite got to our favorite view yet, (laughs) which is the lateral. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that... That's a little exception to the rule that the names of the carpal bones actually describe their shapes. Yeah, well, the lunate looks like a moon. It's a crescent shape. Or if you like, it looks like a bowl on the lateral. So it looks like a mid-month moon, okay, on the lateral film. But on the PA, it actually looks relatively square. And the first time you see these cases, you might not even recognize them or you make it look a little off. And if you're ever in doubt, just x-ray the opposite side and you'll see what normal looks like. Because it's not until the third or fourth or fifth lunate dislocation or perilunate or whatever that you see it and you go, okay, now I can identify it. And you actually have confidence that it's wrong, right? But you may just, you know, your history and physical may bring attention to you. You may be a little suspicious on x-ray. And if you're in doubt, x-ray the opposite side, simple, cheap, dirty test that you can do that will show you what normal's like. Fantastic. Um, I just wanted to go back for a minute to the normal alignment and the lines that you need to look at. So you had mentioned the alignment of the distal radius and the lunate on top of each other, you know, the teacup and all that. Could you just go through for us what lines you're looking for? You know, like on the elbow, we're looking for the, you know, the anterior humeral line and the and the mid radius line every time we look at the elbow x-ray. What lines should we look at every time we look at a wrist x-ray? So if we're actually talking about carpal alignment on the lateral film, what you should be able to see is a line that draws essentially through the second metacarpal, should capture the capitate and the lunate. If the wrist is in neutral, that should then also go through the distal radius. What happens is, is if one has a, a lunate dislocation, it's often, almost always, it's volar. It's called the spilled teacup sign. And when you draw that line in the lateral, the lunate is slipped into the palm. And you see that it's not collinear in this line. If one has a perilunate dislocation, the lunate articulates with the distal radius, but the capitate is not sitting in the lunate. And now it looks like the capitate is off. So this is why on the lateral film, this is it. But one more thing that should draw your attention to it, and it goes back to the earlier case of this is a 20, 30, or maybe a 40-year-old who has a fall in the road. These these lunates and perilunates don't occur in pre-teenagers and rarely would occur in older patients. Because a pre-teenager, if they have such a significant force, will break their distal radius because they have weak bone. The older person will more likely break their distal radius because they have osteoporosis. So the age-related prevalence that Matt talked about before, lunate, perilunate dislocations, this is far more likely in the young adult with a significant force. They have good quality bone, distal radius doesn't break, and then the force goes through the next links in the chain, which are now the carpals. So these carpal injuries, scaphoid, scaphoid ligament, lunate dislocation, perilunate, way more common in young adults than they are in young children or old adults. A word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. Metricade can really help minimize the drawbacks of shift work we all know so well by not only ensuring equitable distribution of shifts, but also integrating circadian rhythm-friendly recovery time into their algorithms. They minimize my sleep deprivation, which allows me to be a better EM doc on shift. I can take better care of my patients and still have energy left after my shifts to enjoy other aspects of my life. Check out metricade.com slash emcases for more details on how this awesome scheduling system works. Let's go back to just our run-of-the-mill Fouche injury 
and distal radius fracture. And talk about why are these sometimes more complicated than just a straightforward distal radius fracture? I think the way you framed the question was great. And it's because we're still focused on the distal radius fracture, right? That's what's in our head. When we look at the deformity in the wrist, that's what we see, our sort of reductionist mindset again. And when we go to the x-ray, we focus on the broken distal radius to the exclusion of everything else that's around that and connected to it and mechanically works with it. So one thing I think is helpful when I'm teaching residents, they all know a Galeazzi fracture. Okay, they at least know the name. They may have a handle on it. Oh, that's a paired bone injury. So one bone's broken and the other one, what happened? Oh, yeah, it was dislocated. Okay, so it's, it's the distal third of the radius that is fractured and it's dorsally angulated. It's hugely dorsally angulated. So it must disrupt the distal radial ulnar joint. Okay, that's Galeazzi as described. Take that idea and just apply it to the dorsally angulated distal radius fracture. And in your mind, you should say, Every angulated distal radius fracture is really a mini Galeazzi. If it's angled up dorsal, it must disrupt the distal radial ulnar joint to some degree. And in fact, for everyone listening that has reduced a distal radius fracture, you have also, by definition, reduced the distal radial ulnar joint. Okay, so that's just one example of paired systems, things that are connected to that distal radius fracture. But what does the literature tell us? One-third to one-half of distal radius fractures have an associated intercarpal ligament sprain. Ah, so now things get more complicated. But it makes sense. Aaron was referring to things going up the chain, energy going up the chain. If it doesn't break one thing, the energy doesn't just disappear. It goes up the chain and must affect another structure. When you have a Fouch injury with reasonable energy... It's not like the only thing that magically in isolation got injured was the distal radius. There's a whole chain of other structures that also absorb some of that energy. And so we just need to open our eyes and our minds to all the other stuff that's in this anatomically dense structure that also sees some of that energy. Now, Anton, you can come back to me and say, Matt, so what? What, are we going to identify those things? Am I going to say there's a second-degree sprain of the ligament between the lunate and the triquetral bone associated with distal radius fracture? And I would agree with you, Anton, in your skepticism and say, look, I'm going to reduce the distal radius. They're going to be immobilized for five to six weeks. And during that immobilization, that intercarpal ligament sprain will also heal. So by putting people in a cast, we're treating a lot of stuff. I think it's just reasonable to be mindful about the continuum, the collection of the injuries that are associated. And I've just named two of them to keep in our eMERGE mindset. And I would just also add to that that they often talk about like geography is destiny. So a patient gets sent to the fast track or ambulatory care and you're like, okay, it's just a wrist injury. Go back and just go, make sure there was a, was it a mechanical fall versus a medical cause for the fall. Make sure there's no other injury. Go up the chain, start at the shoulder, clavicle, work your way down. They could have a radial neck fracture. Maybe they fell and injured the other wrist. And then in our worst case mentality, before you send them for x-ray, look down at skin. What if it's open? The whole timeline changes. So the x-ray looks like they have a distal radius fracture. Of course, they've got that. But if it's an open fracture, they should get the antibiotics before they get the x-ray. And sometimes we miss these bigger picture things as well. So when you talk about like what else could there be, uh, sure, there could be multiple injuries at the wrist, more than, so than just the distal radius fracture, but have that sort of worst case mentality when you manage these patients. We sometimes get into the, it's, it's just a wrist fracture. It's just another colleagues. Uh, and I think we just have to have that healthy skepticism each time we see a patient, be satisfied that that's not present, good. And now we can look after the injury that we see. Absolutely. I just want to dig a little bit deeper into one of the comments you made, Dr. DeSafano, which was fantastic that essentially every distal radius fracture is a drudge or a galeazzi until proven otherwise. And I want to talk a little bit more about drudge injuries because they're something that seems to upset the orthopedic surgeons quite a bit, as opposed to you know the intercarpal ligament strain that you mentioned. The drudge injury is going to make a difference what we do in the emergency department, Whereas the intercarpal ligament strain, it doesn't really make a difference of how we're going to treat our, our distal radius fracture. So when it comes to a drudge injury, first of all, could you just explain what's going on there in terms of the mechanism, what a drudge injury is, and what the spectrum of, of diseases with a drudge injury and why we should care about it? 
Sure, absolutely. And I would say when I'm talking about paired injuries, so you have a distal radius fracture and quote unquote, you must have some sort of drudge injury, that's for a distal radius fracture that's displaced in some way. So it's dorsally angulated or volar angulated and or significantly translated. Then you're also sharing a load, you're imposing a force on the distal radial ulnar joint. And what are you doing? Well, if you have a dorsally angulated distal radius fracture, you're going to stress or partially tear or completely tear out of the volar or the dorsal ligament of the distal radial ulnar joint, the drudge. And same for all those other displacements of the distal radius. Because the distal radius and the distal ulna are so intimately connected, there's a dorsal ligament and a volar ligament. And they have an intimate dance when you move. Pronosupination is arguably as important a range of motion function for our daily living as wrist flexion, extension, ulnar deviation, radial deviation. And yet we don't think about it enough. You'll think about it the next time you go to open a door because that's a supination activity and you're using your drudge. And so I know that Aaron and I often talk about this as the forgotten joint of the wrist. And certainly our orthopedic colleagues think it is the forgotten joint of the wrist for all eMERGE docs because we just fail to consider it. So I've already hinted at what's the morbidity when you miss the injury? Well, people will have a lack of supination, and that is a critical range of motion for most of your daily activities, from brushing your teeth to opening a doorknob to driving a car, you name it. And so you will really notice if you have supination block. And if that becomes a chronic problem, surgically, it's really challenging to treat. And, and there's a spectrum of injury for these drudge injuries as well. You could have a, a drudge injury, just a little bit of a sprain and it's tender and sore. It can be a little bit subluxed. So you can, you can maybe get a little past neutral, but you can't get fully supinated. Or it can be totally out and you have no supination at all. So there's a spectrum of how it appears. And if it's injured, the x-ray can look normal. Like if it's injured but not displaced or not subluxed, the x-ray can look normal. And therefore, that's why clinical exam drives it. And then what do we need to do? Well, we don't need to reduce it, but we need to protect it. Because if that patient goes and two weeks later goes and falls in basketball, falls in football, goes back to work and has a crank of the, you know, let's say a a twisting injury of the wrist, let's say as an auto mechanic and the air compressor, the the drill kicks back on them, they can actually end up with worsening of that injury. And if we just protected them for a few more weeks, they'd be okay. So that's why it's important to recognize these drudge injuries. There's a spectrum of injury, and you just have to recognize where they are on the spectrum. But if it's well lined up, if they have good supination, that doesn't mean there's no drudge injury. It just means there's no drudge injury that needs surgery, but it still needs to be protected. Let's divide drudge injuries into those that are associated with other injuries, like a distal radius fracture and an isolated drudge injury, because I think that's important. So let's first talk about the ones that are with the distal radius fracture. The first question is, if you reduce your distal radius fracture, it's, or you don't need to reduce it, it's in good alignment, and put a splint on and you have them follow up with your orthopedic colleagues, will it make a difference if you identify a drudge injury in the emergency department? So most of the time when you reduce distal radius, you're reducing the drudge unbeknownst to you. And all you have to do is make sure on the lateral film that the radius and ulna still overlap as they should. That's actually a very important thing. Occasionally, if you don't reduce it, the distal ulna is still sitting up. It's still sitting dorsally, and therefore it's going to be an issue. But the majority of time you reduce distal radius fracture, you'll reduce the drudge. Okay. So we're talking about the post-reduction x-ray. You want to scrutinize then the lateral x-ray to see if there's a drudge injury there. To see if radius element line up. And then if it's off, sometimes that's normal. You have to compare to the opposite side. You have to actually clinically look at it as well. It's not purely radiographic. Uh, That's the hint. But if it's off, you still need to look at the opposite side. Is it a good lateral film? There's lots of nuance inside of the drudge for sure. Okay. Let's say you look at the post-reduction x-ray and it looks like the ulna and the radius aren't lined up and you suspect a drudge injury that may require surgery. Is that going to change what you do in the emergency department? Are you going to try and reduce that? Or are you going to speak to your orthopedic? You could certainly try to reduce it, but it might be more challenging if you weren't. If it didn't come along with the right, it might be harder to maintain. And if you think that it's out, then if surgery is a concern, then it needs to be in the hands of a surgeon sooner to decide what to do with it. If you have a very nice reduction of the distal radius fracture and it's you think it's going to be able to be managed without an operation, they can see surgery, a surgeon within a week and get a repeat x-ray. So the timeline and how quickly they need to see ortho is dictated by how worried you are by the case. Got it. So suffice to say then that 
for your standard distal radius fracture that you've reduced, make sure you look at the lateral x-ray to assess for a serious drudge injury. And if you do see malalignment there, you might want to either pick up the phone or however you can get a quicker appointment. That It'll actually make a difference in terms of how soon you want them to see orthopedics. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. Before we get onto the isolated drudge injury, I just want to talk a little bit more about the fractures that are associated with the drudge, because it's my understanding that it's not just the distal radius fractures that can involve the drudge. So could you just go over for us the other fractures that we have to think about drudge for? So, so drudge injuries can occur either with a fracture or in isolation. The ones with a fracture most commonly are fractures of the distal radius. If it's a fracture of the middle shaft or classically the distal third, that's called galeazzi, which, which Matt referred to earlier. But it can also occur with a radial neck fracture. So Matt also commented on the paired bone system. And essentially what happens is, is you have a fracture of the radial neck, there is tenderness along the interosseous membrane. It's a membrane that connects the radius and the ulna, and then the force exits at the distal ulna. So if you want the equivalent in the lower leg, that's mesonuf. That's a, a force that goes up the interosseous membrane and comes out the proximal fibula. This is essentially the same idea. The force comes down and it splits them. So basically the point being is that if you have a fracture of radial neck, mid-shaft radius, distal radius, just examine, just touch the drudge and get used to examining it. All right. Any fracture of the radius, think drudge, examine for it, look for it on the lateral x-ray. And if you suspect more than just a, you know, a strain of the drudge, you might want to just get a quicker appointment with orthopedics. Let's now move on to isolated drudge injuries. And, you know, this, I think most of us would end up calling this, you know, soft tissue injury wrist, but some of these actually require surgery. So Dr. DeSefano, could you go over for us the drudge injuries that we really need to be able to identify and, and get to an orthopedic surgeon? Sure, Anton. It's really about the drudge stories. And those stories involve forced pronosupination. And that's really the important thing to remember. You can now construct a bunch of scenarios where that might happen. So like Aaron was talking about, a mechanic using power tools, impact guns, things that create a lot of torque. And if they get stuck or they fire at the wrong time, they can twist the forearm very suddenly and they can stress the drudge. Uh, motor vehicle collisions, where people are holding onto the steering wheel desperately while having some steering angle in it. So they're in some position of pronosupination, and then they strike something, and then the steering wheel yanks the hand. People that are carrying relatively heavy loads in relative pronation. So they're not carrying a load, for instance, with your hands under the box, with the palms up, in supination. That's stable for the drudge, but they're carrying a box on the side with handles, with their wrist in neutral or slight pronation. Now you've put the drudge in a bit of a risky position. It's less stable. It's less strong. And a bigger load gets put on that box or you trip and stumble and you hear a pop or you feel a pop in your wrist. I hear that story. That's a drudge injury. I almost don't even need to examine that patient. So we just need to be sensitized to these narratives, these stories that really clearly tell, hey, this person's had a drudge injury forced pronosupination to some degree by an external mechanism. Fantastic. So that's the history. What about the physical? I mean, we know where the drudge is. I've heard before, I think uh, Dr. Seal, you said something like uh, pronation, supination of the wrist is one of the most underutilized physical exam tests that we kind of forget to do supination, pronation against resistance. So could you just go through for us what you'd look for for that person, let's say, that had a sudden supination, pronation history, what are you going to look for on the physical exam? Yeah, I generally do four things with those patients. And one of those four things I do in every wrist patient, and you're alluding to that already, and that's the pronosupination handshake. So I just support their elbow with one hand and I shake their hand with my other hand. But rather than shaking up and down, I shake in pronosupination and twist. And I just look at their face and I can see if that's comfortable or not. So that's a really good screening test. Then I want to see them show me active range of motion with both wrists, both forearms, and show me that you can get to full supination, palms up towards the ceiling. Because if you can demonstrate complete active supination that's symmetrical, you may have a drudge sprain, but it's minor. It's going to be a grade one. So if I put those two screening tests together, that lets me know if this person has a problem or not. 
Now, if they got a problem, so the pronosupination handshake is provocative, they're uncomfortable, or in their active range of motion, they can't get to full supination, then I'm going to do two things. Number one, I'm going to palpate the drudge. I'm going to put my finger on the dorsum of the drudge. Of course, you really can't palpate the volar surface of the drudge because it's buried underneath a lot of stuff. You can compare to the other side. Like Aaron was referring to, you can see if the ulnar stylet is more prominent. But here's where I think the money really is on physical exam, and that's to shuck the drudge. Firm grab of the distal radius so you have your hand on it. Then pincer with your thumb and your index finger, the ulnar styloid, and stress it, shuck it, volar to dorsal, and see what the movement is. Everybody's going to have some glide. What you're interested in is do they have a firm stop with volar stress and a firm stop with dorsal stress, then compare it to the other side. Is that what's sometimes referred to as the piano key sign? Well, the piano key sign would be that the dorsal ligament is completely blown and that the ulnar styloid appears to be up relative to the distal radius. I'll come back to my careful choice of words there in a moment, but that's an overtly grade three, completely blown dorsal ligament, dislocated DRUJ. When it looks like the ulnar styloid is up dorsally relative to the radius, you can push down on that distal ulnar styloid and you can reduce it. And it's like pushing down on a piano key. When you release your finger, the piano key springs back up. When you release your finger from the distal ulna, it springs back up. And that's an overt distal radial ulnar joint dislocation. So that's a grade three ligament, complete tear of the ligament. When I'm talking about the shuck test, Anton, this is more about what Aaron was talking about, like nuance. This is, I'm not looking for a complete dislocation. I'm looking for something that's injured, subluxed, provocative, and I'm gaining some feel for that relative to the opposite side. I think that, you know, we've all discussed this before in, in our previous podcast that this game of MSK medicine, it's a tactile sport. You have to be hands-on. There's a kinesthetic intelligence to doing this. It's as much right brain as it is left brain. And on that, just two small little points just to help the listener, perhaps. When Matt talks about, about pronation, supination, it's super important. A couple of things. Just coach the patient to have their elbows touch their sides. Because sometimes what happens is they, they abduct their shoulder to try to get forearm rotation to show you a pronate, and it's actually cheating. You want to isolate forearm rotation. So when their elbows are touching their side, all of that sort of thumbs up, th palms up, palms down is all done through the forearm. If their elbow's not touching their side, they can make it look like they're putting palm down, but it's really achieved because they're abducting their shoulder. So it's important to isolate forearm rotation. And then also appreciate, as Matt was saying, the difference between side to side, because there's a lot of variability patient to patient. Females have way more ligament laxity than males do. So when you examine the drudge of a female, you'd expect it to have more play than of a male. So there's lots of variation of normal patient to patient, but within any one patient, left should equal right. So for drudge injuries, there's the history, sudden supination, pronation, or a load on supination, pronation. They have pain right where you'd expect it, between the distal radius and the distal ulna. On exam, they're going to be tender right there. The obvious, the full tear, you try the piano key sign. So just put your finger over the, on the ulnar styloid and see if it feels like a piano key compared to the other side. And then the uh, shuck test, I guess we'll call it, is you know get that pincer grasp around the distal ulna, stabilize the distal radius, and see if uh, there's much movement there compared to the other side. Now, let's say you diagnose a drudge injury that you suspect is more than just a sprain. What do we do with that? The first question is, do you ever try and reduce these in the emergency department if it's an obvious, obviously out? How would you reduce it and immobilize it? And then the second question is, if you don't think it needs reduction or you don't know how to reduce it, what kind of treatment do they need? What kind of immobilization and follow-up do they need? Anton, for immobilizing these, you really have two options. You can hang out with the patient for three to four weeks and hold their forearm in supination. That would be fine if you particularly like the patient. Uh, but the other option is you need some sort of pronation blocking device. And I'm saying that very specifically because once you're supinated and reduced, the only thing that's going to let that go, that's going to redislocate the drudge, is allowing pronation of the forearm. So there are a bunch of approaches to it. But the two-stage thing to do in eMERGE that's simple is a deep radial gutter, short arm, followed by 
a back slab above elbow. And it's really that back slab that's the money because that blocks pronation of the forearm. Okay. So your goal is to block pronation and you can do that with a radial gutter splint plus above elbow, which, you know, you don't intuitively think that you need an above elbow, but it makes total sense if you want to block pronation for these drudge injuries. I skipped over x-ray, so I want to just go back to the x-ray. Like you said, Dr. Ciel, there is a spectrum of injury with drudge, and most of these, you'll see nothing on the x-ray. But the more advanced drudge injuries, you might see something on the x-ray. What are you looking for on the x-ray? You need a good lateral film, a good lateral film. The metacarpal, the base of the metacarpal should all line up. If the metacarpals are rotated, the whole forearm might be rotated. And if the forearm's rotated, it'll give the impression of the distal ulna being out. So you need to make sure it's a good lateral. But on a good lateral, the radius in the ulna normally will line up. As a variation of normal, some patients, the distal ulna normally will actually look out dorsally. That'll just be normal for that patient. So it's important to compare to the opposite side, but pay attention to it. If it's off, if clinically it looks like it's out and radiographically it looks like it's out, then it's out. Then when you reduce it, make sure you take a post-reduction film. But if a patient can achieve full supination, their distal radio ulnar joint has to be anatomic. If they can't achieve full supination, there are many reasons for it, one of it being the drudge being out. Fantastic. That's a lot of stuff on drudge, which, you know, I have to be honest that I barely paid attention to drudge injuries before I met Dr. (laughs) Seale. I tell people I use a lot of four-letter words in Emerge, but drudge was never one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Now a word from one of our sponsors, Easy Recess, your ultimate support to save lives during the first hour of resuscitation. Picture this. You're faced with intubating a seizing child, managing a peri-arrest patient with a beta blocker overdose, or resuscitating a breathless premature newborn. Calculating doses, setting up drips, choosing the right equipment, and remembering each step can be overwhelming. Easy Recess changes the game. Download Easy Recess today. Use promo code EM cases, that's one word, E M C A S E S, to get your first two months free or visit easyrecess.com slash EM cases for more details. And Easy Recess is E Z R E S U S. We've learned a ton so far about constructing our initial differential diagnosis from the history and the physical, some pearls there, some x ray interpretation pearls. We haven't left the wrist yet. There are two more wrist fractures that I'd like to discuss, and those are Barton and Smith. Let's start with Barton. So, Dr. Ciel, what is a Barton fracture, and how is it different, and why would we care that it's different than a Coley's fracture? So, Barton's fractures are completely different than than Coley's fractures and Smith's fractures. Be careful of the eponyms, and we just want you to appreciate the, the difference. So, a Barton's fracture has two varieties. It can be a dorsal lip of the distal radius fracture, an interarticular fracture that you, you see on the lateral film. It's the dorsal lip that's where the fragment is taken off, or it could be the volar lip of the distal radius. So one can have a dorsal Barton's, one can have a volar Barton's. These are adults. These are not in children with open growth plates. So when you have this, also as a general principle, that why the lateral view is so important If one has a fracture where they fall on the back of the hand, it's the flexors that pull on it. Anything that's on the volar side or the flexor side is going to be far less stable because our flexors are way stronger than our extensors of the wrist. They're of much greater deforming force. So therefore, if you ever see somebody has a distal radius fracture, you just see it on the lateral and it's just on the volar lip. That's called a volar Barton's, a very unstable fracture. If it's not in good position, you can try to reduce it, but it's very hard to maintain. Almost always these will be surgical. If it's displaced significantly as a volar Barton's, often the carpals are subluxed volarly as well. So it almost looks like a reverse dinner fork is what it sometimes looks at when you look at it. And in fact, all those carpals are down volar. So again, a very unstable pattern. How we mold that in the emergency department is we try to reduce it, mold it in extension. But again, if it's a volar Barton's, that's almost always going to be surgical, unless there's some overwhelming patient reason not to go to the OR. A dorsal Barton's just involves the dorsal lip fragment. 
of volar bartons just involves the volar lip fragment. And the problem there is you're creating a very focal instability. So if the dorsal lip is knocked off, you don't capture the carpus. In fact, our colleagues that do hand surgery talk about carpal escape. So a dorsal bartons, the carpus is likely to escape dorsally, hence be subluxed. A volar bartons, just that one volar fragment off, the rest of the distal radius is intact. The carpus can escape volarly, in other words, be subluxed. I guess the bottom line there is that this one small lip of the distal radius that's fractured off is actually an unstable fracture that requires surgery. You know, it might not look bad, but it is. Especially the volar one. The dorsal one might be held down if it's okay, but the volar one almost always will be surgical. And again, it's the importance of the lateral film and recognizing which is the volar side, like the lateral film is the main view in orthopedics. Okay. So talking about volar, let's move on then to Smith's fractures. So I've seen this multiple times where we're racing through patients and you take a quick look at the lateral x-ray and you see that there's a distal radius fracture and you assume that it's a Coley's and you start reducing what you think is a Coley's and it's actually a Smith. So you're actually pushing it into a worse position and then you're immobilizing it improperly and that's not good. So I've seen that more than once. Let's just go over what is a Smith's fracture and how are you going to treat it differently than a Coley's fracture or a Barton's fracture? Sure. So with a Coley's type fracture, we talk about fall on outstretched hand. When the patient falls, their outstretched hand hits the pavement, whatever they hit as a ground. And then what happens is the force comes from the volar side and gets driven up dorsally. And that's why the distal fragment is dorsally tipped. With a Smith's type fracture, the force is the opposite. A patient falls on the back of their hand. So it's actually great to ask from history. If you just ask the patient, did you fall in your outstretched hand? Everybody says yes. But if you say, I know you injured your left wrist, show me with your right wrist how you fell. If you ever see them with their hand kind of curled back, like they're falling on the back of their hand, that's a red flag that this could be a Volar Bartons, this could be a Smith's, this is a way worse injury because it's now being directed down to the flexor side or the volar side. So asking that's important. Sometimes the history is, you know, they were on their bike and, you know, they, they go over the handlebars, they hit something suddenly, they go over the handlebar, they think they're okay. So there's, your, your tendency is to squeeze onto the handlebars until such times you realize you're not going to be okay. And then by the time you let go, your hands are behind you. If somebody's on a scooter, they're holding onto a handle, a T-bar of the handle. And when they suddenly stop, they're going forward, but your tendency is to squeeze on and hold on for dear life. If you were on a skateboard and you fell, you'd put your hand out right away to protect you. But when you're on a scooter, so that mechanism, that little bit of a history is super important. Sometimes somebody going over a horse, they're holding onto the reins of the horse and their hands are stuck behind them before they let go. So the history part's really important on physical exam, just seeing the deformity, it's not a dinner fork, it's a reverse dinner fork. And then you can go look at the x-ray. And when you look at an x-ray, lateral view is the main view and learn to put the lateral view horizontal with the thumb down all the time. Every time you see a wrist x-ray, if you do this, you will start to identify these fractures where the force comes from dorsal to volar. And if it's the flexors that pull on it, uh, because it goes dorsal volar, the flexors are the deforming force, you're just going to have increased concern for this fracture. That's a, that's a great description of the mechanism, the physical, and the x-ray. So how are these going to be managed in terms of reduction and immobilization? What are you going to do for these Smith's fractures? Anton, the first step is to recognize what you have. And this is a fracture that goes down or volar angulated. And I'm being a bit pedantic about saying that because in your mind, you're thinking, oh, my immobilization strategy has to oppose the personality of the fracture. If the fracture goes down, the cast should go up. And that's key to say to yourself, even if people look at you like you're crazy and you emerge, you can be wandering around muttering, fractured down, cast up, fractured down, cast up, to remind yourself this needs to be casted with the wrist in extension. Notice I haven't said anything about molding. We're just talking about position. The position is wrist in extension because that opposes the personality of the fracture. Unlike a Collie's type fracture, we're not going to mold this one. Ask yourself why. What's the soft tissue over the volar surface at the distal radius? Do I really want to have a, a dent over my median nerve? Not a good idea. 
So the Smith's fracture is held or maintained simply by position, wrist extension, and then you're going to go above elbow. You're going to go above elbow to lock out what we discussed before. You're going to lock out pronosupination, which is a deforming force for this type of injury. What a great little pitfall there. I'm not sure that I was ever aware of that, that you don't want to mold a splint for a Smith's fracture because you really don't want to cause an acute carpal tunnel syndrome. What a great pearl there. Amazing. So again, a Smith's fracture, you want to reduce it by wrist extension. And when you're immobilizing it, immobilize them in wrist extension and above elbow splint. I also appreciate that these fractures are much more likely, even if you get a nice reduction, they're much more likely to be surgical because the natural history is it's hard to maintain. Even if you have a good reduction, they should see a surgeon sooner than if you had an equivalent, let's say, Coley's type fracture that you know, fall up in a week, no problem. But Smith's fractures are much more likely to be surgical. Yeah, actually, that brings up a not that uncommon myth out there that I used to hear that for a Smith's fracture, there's no point in trying to reduce it in the emergency department because they always slip and they're going to need surgery anyways. So that's a myth. You should try and reduce it in the emergency department. So even if you even if you knew it was going to the OR, there were multiple reasons to reduce it. Less pain, less swelling, less likely to stretch nerve artery vein. As well, there are some patients who just refuse surgery. Even though, you know, in the Canadian system, there's no charge for it. Some patients are terrified of surgery. Going, I don't want surgery. So they make the decision not to. And if you don't reduce it in the emergency department, you impair their ability to get as good a function as they possibly could. So there are many reasons to reduce it, even if they're going to the You're protecting the soft tissue. Just a quick announcement before we get to the home stretch. As you probably know already, EM Cases is free open access, not just the podcast, but the show notes, the POCUS videos, the rapid reviews videos, the Q&A Pro of the Week, the Just for Nuggets, the Quiz Vault, the entire EM Cases learning system. And it costs a lot of money to keep EM Cases cruising along, $20,000 a year, in fact. Some medical education podcasts were once free open access and have switched to a subscription model. Others have been subscription model for years, but we've decided to stay free open access. So in order to ensure that we stay free open access into the future, we've added a donation button to the EM Cases website, to the Facebook page, the Instagram page, and in the podcast feed. If you've been soaking up free EM Cases goodness for a while, or even if you've just started listening to EM Cases and you're feeling generous or want to show your gratitude this holiday season, please consider clicking that donate button or that donate box. It's in the right top corner at the EM Cases website. We've made it quick and easy to give as little or as much as you want. Thanks so much for your support. All right, back now to the home stretch of wrist injuries. All right, we're nearing the end of part one of our two-part series on wrist and carpal bone injuries. Let's just take turns here. If there were any other pearls or pitfalls when it comes to wrist injuries, what would they be? We'll be talking about carpal bones in the next part, but when it comes to wrists in particular, distal radius, drudge, we've talked about Smith's, Barton's, any other wrist common pearls and pitfalls? Dr. CL? When we see these patients, we basically put carpals and wrists together. So in the bigger picture, what I would say is just think about age-related prevalence, as, as, as Matt mentioned at the outset. So well, if you're a pre-teenager, way more likely to have distal radius, way less likely to have a carpal injury. If you're an older adult, way more likely to have a distal radius fracture, way less likely to have a carpal injury, though it is possible. It's way less likely. And then in the young adult, this is where you're really going to shine if you really pay attention to their surface anatomy. Because in the younger adult, it could be distal radius, it could be any of these carpal injuries. And with that in mind, once you know what the carpal injuries are, do a history, do a physical, think of age-related prevalence, and then the x-ray becomes a much better, much more useful tool to use in the eMERGE. Yeah, three things. And I'm going to go in increasing order of nerd here, Anton, if that's okay. <laughs> First of all is, I think the distal radius fractures, we have to consider the forgotten joint and the forgotten structures. And we talked about the forgotten joint being the drudge and one of the forgotten structures being intercarpal ligaments. But if you follow distal radius fracture patients along, either casually, people you know, people you talk to, or you've had one yourself, or you're following them in clinic, or you see people back in the eMERGE, ask these patients where they hurt after a year. And almost all the distal radius fracture patients that have healed, either conservatively or surgically, 
will have residual, nagging, annoying, ulnar-sided wrist pain. And that's a hint that they have a TFC tear associated with their distal radius fracture. A TFC? What the heck is a TFC? It's the first cousin of KFC, but it's not chicken. It's the <laughs> triangular fibrocartilage. All right. Th this is brand new to me, so um, you'll have to slow down on this one. A TFC. What is a TFC and why should we care about it? So in that little black space, ironically shaped like a triangle that exists just distal to your ulnar styloid on the x-ray. So when we're looking at our PA views and we're looking at the carpus and we're looking at the distal radius and the distal ulna, sometimes you sort of blank out on this dark space of vacuum, the black hole in the wrist. What's in that triangular space? It's actually the meniscus of the wrist, if you like. In the same way, there's a meniscus in your knee that exists in that black space, that joint space on the plane films. And in the wrist, that triangular fibrocartilage serves a lot of roles, but you can think of it as being a little soft tissue carpal bone that sits on the end of the, the distal ulna. And again, if you have enough force to break your distal radius, particularly if you're going to displace it in some way, there's a good chance that force is shared by the TFC and it can have a partial tear in it in the same way you can have a tear in your knee meniscus. That's underappreciated in the immersion department for sure. And our orthopedic colleagues are well aware of it, especially with long-term follow-up. So that's just something to think about to add to your anatomical knowledge. And again, to open your eyes and see the world beyond just the broken bone, just the distal radius fracture. Cool. All right. So you said you had uh, three in increasing nerdiness. What's the second one? <laughs> The second one is going to be my, my life's work now, Anton, and that's that we stop calling the pisiform a carpal bone because it's not really. And it, it does not participate in the proximal carpal row. And as eMERGE physicians, we should probably just forget about it. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the chance you're going to see a pisiform fracture is exceedingly low. It's around the same incidence as spotting a unicorn. To be serious, we should think of the pisiform for what it is. It's a sesamoid bone. So quadriceps to patella is the same as flexor carpi ulnaris to pisiform. It's not really mechanically in the first carpal row. And so we should think about it differently. I mean, you started with a really nerdy one, and then the second one was equally as nerdy as I can't imagine you getting any nerdier than than those two, but let's hear your third. Well, uh, we might have to we might have to hold off on full nerd then for our next conversation. Okay. And Dr. CL, any uh, last wrist pearls, pitfalls, anything you can think of that you've seen in the fracture clinic recently where you think the emergency physician could have uh, altered their, their management that we haven't spoken about yet? I'll tell you, honestly, I'm thoroughly impressed by our eMERGE physicians. The number of times we see things like drudge diagnoses made or forearm cast molded an extension, like it's just getting better and better and better in our group. And I think we're recognizing these less common things more often and we're putting the same approach. So I would say the one thing I will say, if you look for these things, you will start to find them. And when you find them, identify them and just go, oh, I just picked that up. That's kind of cool. That'll sort of like entice you to go look for it again next time. You'll feel good about the work that you're doing. These less common diagnoses, you know, every carpal injury shouldn't be a scaphoid. Every distal radius fracture shouldn't be a coles. Every kid's distal radius fracture shouldn't be a buckle. Start to understand the spectrum and, and where that patient lies. All right, fantastic. So in this part one of our two-part podcast on wrist and carpal bone injuries, we covered constructing an initial differential diagnosis from the history some physical exam tips and tricks, mastering the wrist and hand x-ray, the dreaded drudge injury, and a bit about Barton and Smith fractures. In part two, we'll dive into the most commonly missed and mismanaged carpal bone injuries. So we'll talk about triquetral fractures, scaphalunate injuries, perilunate injuries, hamate fractures, and of course, the scaphoid fracture. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Can't wait for part two. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you.